Mark 5, verse 25. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said to herself, If I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. To gain an appreciation for the drama that develops as this woman worms her way through the crowd, touching people, brushing shoulders with others as she attempts to reach out and touch Jesus' garments for healing, we have to refresh our memories as it relates to ritual purity laws in Israel. Ritual states in Israel were how people knew where they could go and what they could do as it relates to acts of worship. And so priests, for example, were ritually pure and ritually holy. And so they could go, by virtue of being priests and their ritual states, they could go into the tabernacle, right? Other people couldn't do that. Wrong ritual state. Or if you offered a fellowship offering and you were in a pure state or a clean state, you, you could eat the food of the fellowship offering. But if you were in an impure ritual state, well, then you couldn't eat it. So these ritual states determine where you can go and what you can do as it relates to worship. Contemporary illustration we used a couple weeks ago when we talked about this would be, be a little bit analogous to like a hospital or health. And so somebody with the flu isn't allowed to go into a hospital and hold a newborn baby. But a healthy person, they can do that, no problem. And while a healthy person can go into the hospital, a healthy and sterilized person is the one who can go into the operating room. But if you're just healthy and you're not healthy and sterilized, you can't get into the operating room. As you can see, likewise in Israel, these ritual states determine where people can go and what they can do as it relates to worship. And there are three basic states. We've mentioned them already. You can picture them uh, kind of if you want to have a line segment in your brain from like point A to point B and a continuum there. And then two lines. You can have three sections. So you can have uh, the impure, the pure, and the holy. Sometimes this is clean, unclean, and the holy. And so uh, clean corresponds to pure, unclean corresponds to impure. And within these distinct sections, there exist gradations or degrees. And so to use the priest, for example, once more, all the priests were in this holy state. But the high priest was more ritually holy than the rest of the priests. And this, this works in the same way as it relates to impurity. See, in the impurity, you could be um, minorly impure, and, and minor impurities could just be addressed by simple um, washing. You know, you wait till evening, you bathe yourself, you wash your clothes, and then you're clean again the next day. Not that big of a deal. And you can go back before the Lord in worship. There's also major impurities. And major impurities, they lasted at least seven days, and they were, they were contagious. And you had to do some more things in order to become clean, and that varied depending upon the type of impurity. But it would be contagious. I, I think of it like, um, I don't know if when you were in grade school, did you guys ever do uh, circle, circle, dot, dot, now I've got my cootie shot? I don't know if you... Yeah. So there's different variations of this in grade school. And, and if you didn't have your cootie shot and somebody touched you, you would get cooties especially girls, right? And so, so the, you can picture how these impurities that are contagious would spread throughout the people. And people, and not just people would conduct these things, but, but items, right? So that if you had a major impurity, an example of a major impurity would be um, a genital discharge that lasted an abnormal genital discharge. And so if somebody sat on something and then you came along and sat down after them, well, guess what? You've, you've now become unclean. And so how you address that uh, depends on uh, what the uncleanliness is, what the impurity is, and, and there's a specific process outlined for us in Leviticus. This is a wonderful book. It reminds us that God cares about every area 
of our lives. He is indifferent to nothing. He wants to be honored in everything. These purity laws vividly convey for us over and over again that human beings are spiritually unclean and can't go into God's presence without purification. Important caveat here. Ritual purity is not the same thing as sin. So you could become ritually impure or ritually unclean and it it wouldn't be a sin, right? And so, so ritual purity is not the same thing as moral status, but it is aimed at teaching us about holiness and about morality. So really normal and basic acts that that are not sinful at all could land you in the impure status, right? Uh, Sex is a good example. Inside a marriage, a married couple have sex, they're both going to be unclean, as we will see, until the evening. What they got to do? They got to take a bath, they got to wash their clothes, and good to go the next day. Just can't go to worship right away. And there there are reasons for this. But but to get back to, to where I started, these major impurities would spread. And as we've seen as we've worked through Leviticus, is that these impurities within the camp, they, they touch not just people, but the environment. And what we'll see is that your sin, or not your sin, the, your impurity, if it wasn't dealt with appropriately, could even contaminate the Lord's tabernacle. And major impurities, somehow, Leviticus doesn't tell us, automatically defiled the Lord's holy things. And they had to be purified on the Day of Atonement. This woman that was rushing through the crowd trying to reach out to Jesus had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years. And you cannot be cleansed from an abnormal discharge until the discharge stops. And so she has been unclean, unable to worship or to go into these ritual places for 12 years. And she thinks to herself, I've wasted all my money on these doctors. It hasn't worked. But this Jesus seems to be able to heal people. If I can just touch him. Now she goes to Jesus. She begins making others unclean. And what we would expect to happen when she gets to Jesus is that he would become unclean also. We'll come back to that story later. But right now, what I want us to see is that even though ritual purity is not tantamount to sin, it does teach us about sin. It teaches us about our spiritual condition. That indeed, we are spiritually unclean and that we can't enjoy relationship with God unless we're purified. And I think that's the main idea of Leviticus chapters 12 and 15. In fact, chapters 12 through 15, it's, it's a huge chunk of text, uh, and we're just going to use do 12 and 15 uh, together today because they fit together um, thematically. Thematically is the word I tried to say there. Thematically, they fit together, and they work kind of like bookends, and so next week we'll do chapters 13 and 14. And you can see the main idea there before you. God's people can enjoy relationship with him only when they have been made pure. The exhortation is ultimately to come to Jesus and to be cleansed. Your outline there is very simple. It just tells you what each chapter deals with. Chapter 12 deals with childbirth and uh, chapter 15 with discharges. Really exciting outline there. We're going to pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. We don't know how many of these we get in life where we are able to gather together with the saints to hear your word proclaimed, to sing the gospel to one another, to encourage one another on towards good deeds and love. Each one is precious. We pray that we would value it appropriately. We ask that you would calm our minds and our hearts, that we might hear from you. Pray that in this odd section in Leviticus, that we would understand a little bit more about these holy laws that distinguished your people, and that from them we would learn a little bit about you, about your holiness, about our need to highly regard your holiness, 
about our need to live holy lives. We thank you for your word. It's all profitable. All of it will build us up in the faith. We ask now that you would speak to us. We ask believing that you will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites, when a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a male child, she will be unclean seven days, as she is during the days of her menstrual impurity. The flesh of his foreskin must be circumcised on the eighth day. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 33 days. She must not touch any holy thing or go into the sanctuary until completing her days of purification. But if she gives birth to a female child, she will be unclean for two weeks as she is during her menstrual impurity. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 66 days. When her days of purification are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He will present them before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. She will be clean from her discharge of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to a male or a female. But if she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a purification offering. Then the priest will make atonement on her behalf, and she will be clean. There are two wrong ways to understand this chapter. And oftentimes, if you would just open your Bible and you had some kind of agenda, this would be a really good place to drop down to prove your point. If you wanted to say something like, uh, see, the Bible has a really negative view of children. Children are a curse. They make you unclean. Or if you wanted to come and make another erroneous sort of claim. Like, girls are inferior to boys. Don't you see she has to wait longer for the girl before she goes and is purified than for the boy? See that difference? That means, see, girls are inferior to boys. Those are two wrong ways to understand the text, and we will address both throughout the course of the sermon. But you do look at this, and you wonder, why on earth would childbirth make a woman unclean? Is it because God has a negative view of children? No. Right? I mean, you might even think, like, who would want to go through all the pain of childbirth, and then you have to go through all this purification process stuff? Doesn't it just discourage having children? No, not at all. The testimony of the Bible is the exact opposite of that. The Bible doesn't say that children are a curse, but that children are a blessing. In fact, what is the first command that God gives to humanity? It's in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. What God is saying to, to his creation there, to Adam and Eve, is have sex, have babies, and fill up the earth. With my presence, you are my image bearers, and through you I have decided to, make my, to rule through you wherever you go. Your, your job is to bring the rest of the world into Edenic-like beauty and harmony. That's a good command. God commands them to have children. It's a wonderful task, and it doesn't evaporate when sin enters the world. It gets amended with the Great Commission, that now we are to make disciples of all nations so that the world is filled with people who are rightly honoring God. But, but it still persists. God wants to rule the world through his image bearers. And he will when Christ returns. And essential part of that process? Well, Adam and Eve can't do that on their own. An essential part of that process is children Children are always seen as a blessing in the Bible. 
You think famously of Psalm 127. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. And you ask, well, how many is in a quiver? I don't, I don't know. Depends on the size of the bag. I don't know. But the person who has children, happy, blessed. And who can forget that when we find people who are childless in Scripture, they look at this as an affliction. I can't, I can never forget Rachel, Jacob's wife in Genesis, crying out to God, give me sons or I will die. Right? She's, she's feeling afflicted. You can think of, of Hannah crying out before the Lord for a child at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Or, or even of Elizabeth, who in her old age, when she discovers she is pregnant, she says to herself, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days upon me to take away my disgrace among the people. Friends, God loves children. This is not a polemic against child rearing. God loves children. They're part of his plan to fill the earth with his imagers. We too should share God's positive view of children. We want to make sure that we are less get off my lawn people and more let's wrestle people. You know, I'm going to chase you people. We want to love and appreciate children just like God does. We want to have a positive view of them. We want to welcome them here. So the few children that are still in here, you are welcome here. We want to support parents of children. We, we want to befriend kids. We want them to know that they are, are welcome here. That God cares for them. We do this in a number of ways also. Uh, in the week, we open up our facilities and allow the homeschool group of Nelson County uh, to utilize them and to, to meet here. And you go, uh, do things get broken? Yeah. Uh, sometimes things are left a mess? Yup. Do things get, get put out of place? Absolutely they do, you bet. But that's what happens when you are hospitable to anyone. You have somebody over to your house, your carpet is going to get a little dirty and your pillows are going to get a little bit ruffled, but that's the cost of relationship. That's the cost of loving one another, of, of loving our neighbors. And so it's a cost we are willing to pay. I think another way we, we try to love children is yearly. We do VBS for a week. And many of you pour a ton of time and a ton of energy into that week so that you can make this really fantastic experience for the children in our community to come to and to hear the gospel. It's an awesome way to love kids. And Pam is always willing to accept more volunteers for that endeavor. And so you, yes, you, could volunteer even today after service. A way to, to love children. Now, some of you are, are sitting there and going, of course, this is, this is an obvious thing. This isn't a, a hard thing. Why are we spending time here? I think the answer is because loving children and having a high view of them is actually very countercultural right now. Children are not looked at as a blessing in our culture. They're more looked at as, you know, nice garnish, a little side piece to a nice career after you've really lived life and, and done everything you need to do. It's kind of optional thing that is okay for, for some people if you're into that sort of thing. Otherwise, they're viewed as a roadblock to career success and self-actualization. Really, they're viewed as a, it's a curse. There's all kinds of evidence for this. I, I could have picked my illustration, but um, I was particularly struck by a, a horrific story I, I heard last week or two weeks ago from Ohio. A, a couple had uh, ordered some pills through the mail uh, in order to, to abort their child uh, because they thought that was the wisest choice for them. And the young girl uh, took the pills 
And then something unexpected happened. Uh, the baby was born alive at 28 weeks. And instead of providing care for the child or taking the child to a hospital, they stuffed the child into a shoebox and subsequently into a trash can. The body was discovered, and now the parents are being prosecuted for manslaughter. And I'm filled with compassion for, for both the, the parents and the lost child. But I found myself asking a question. What kind of thinking leads a couple to, to believe that the best decision for their lives is to kill their offspring? Well, worldly thinking. Thinking that says children are a curse. Children will keep me from being who I need to be. Children will, will get in the way of, of myself and my plans and my life and other people. Children are a burden. Friends, this is satanic and worldly thinking. We must vehemently reject it. It is countercultural to love children and to love them from the time they are in the womb and to the time when they're little kids until they move on into adulthood. It is countercultural, and yet I think some of the culture's thinking here seeps into the way that we talk to one another and act sometimes. And I'm, I'm probably guilty of this too. Uh, how many of us, when we have seen a couple with, with children, said something like, at once we discover they're pregnant again, say, don't you know how that happens? Are you done? You're, you're done now, surely. Are you crazy? I think when we, we say these things, maybe they're lighthearted, but the presupposition underneath of them is that more children is a bad thing. That children are not a blessing, but a curse. But friends, we, we must reject such thinking. God loves children. If, however, you ask, children are such a blessing, why is the mother impure after childbirth? Like, what, what is going on in Leviticus 12? And the first answer I have for you is because of the blood loss. Because of the blood loss. Anytime blood is in the wrong place in Leviticus, it is the most defiling thing. And, um, you know, I didn't know this for a long time, but there is a lot of blood lost during labor and childbirth and after. And so it makes the woman impure. You, you see that in verse 4, right? She will continue in purification from her bleeding. Blood is what is the defiling agent here. And blood is not the only bodily discharge that can make one unclean. There's a whole list of them, and it's in Leviticus chapter 15. If you just want to turn the page over there, and um, we will work through this chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. I'm just going to kind of give you an overview, and we'll work through it like high school health class a little bit. It'll be a little bit awkward and kind of funny, but, but we'll get done. We'll get through there. So we have the, the chapter set up and what's called a chiasm, and so it works a little bit like a mirror for those of you who are into such things. So it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. Introduction, conclusion, um, abnormal male discharge, abnormal female discharge, and then in the middle, normal male discharge, normal female discharge. It's a way to help you remember it. It's how I've remembered it. Uh, and so the first thing we come to, and it's the first 12 verses, is an abnormal, I'm sorry, the first 15 verses, abnormal male Discharge, And in case I mess any of this up, there is a really faded kind of copy on your insert that outlines all of this for you that you can, you can check my work later. Anyhow, 
An abnormal male discharge is described, and most all commentators agree that the ailment that is being given description to is gonorrhea or something like gonorrhea. It's um, something that is seeping out or causing a blockage. And this discharge is a major impurity. It's an abnormal discharge. It makes the person who has it impure and contagious. So that wherever they sit or whatever they they touch will become unclean. And so you can see some things there uh, in the text. Uh, You you don't want to touch a saddle if they sat on a saddle or on a couch or on furniture. It's going to make you unclean. If they touch you, become unclean. Or if, I love one, is it verse 8 or 9? It's 8. If the man with the discharge spits on anyone who is clean... The person who's clean is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. You go, spits on? That's really weird. But apparently this was a uh, somewhat normal cultural action that conveyed disdain or shame, and so it wasn't out of the question that somebody would have an abnormal genital discharge and come up to you and spit on you. And then you would have the problem of being unclean and going, well, what do I do to get clean? And you would have to follow the prescriptions that we just went over. And though, so this would make, if you are um, come across the abnormal genital discharge, you would then, typically, this is with most um, uncleanliness, when you receive it from someone who's contagious, you have to bathe and wait until evening. Usually wash your clothes as well. The person with the discharge themselves, though, is clean Only after the discharge stops, then they have to wait seven days and follow uh, the prescription. And so you can see there in your uh, middle column on the bottom, it says wait seven days, wash their clothes, bathe with fresh water, wait until evening. On the eighth day, after, after all that's been done, then they offer a purification and a burnt offering. And then they are clean. And that... Uh, outline is the same, it fits right away, with, right there with the abnormal female discharge in the closing verses. It's the same process, same procedure. Next thing we see is normal male discharge, and that's in verses 16 through 18. And this is simply an emission of semen, whether it happens nocturnally or in the course of intercourse. This makes uh, both the man and anything his semen touches unclean. And this is a minor impurity. You just have to wait till the end of the day. Wash yourself and clothing and anything else that the semen touched, and then the person will be clean. And and you can see in verse 18 um, that it's actually the man's semen that makes uh, the sexual act uh, impure. And both man and woman after sex would be impure until evening after they have washed and, and bathed. Now, elsewhere, Leviticus will tell us that the, the sexual act is prohibited uh, when a woman is having her cycle or is menstruating, that you are not to have sexual intercourse during that period of time because of the uncleanliness from the blood. Uh, but here, it's clear that the semen is causing the uncleanliness. And, and again, this is a minor impurity. It's not sin to become ritually impure. And so sometimes the question comes up, like, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the sections on sex in Leviticus, but uh, why this prohibition? It seems really weird. And uh, one of the best explanations I've heard is that this would have made Israel very distinct and very clear to the Israelites that sex had no part in the worship of Yahweh. You see, uh, the surrounding people oftentimes would participate in cultic prostitution and other sexual perversions as a way of worshiping their false deities. And so part of what God is doing with this particular prescription is he's saying, uh, that is not a way that you are going to worship me. It's not that sex is bad, sex is good. God created it. He commanded it. You know, in the New Testament, we find uh, Paul says, if, if you're a married couple, you need to have sex. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, you need to have sex regularly. And he says, because if you don't, you'll be tempted by the devil. And so he says, continue to come together regularly. And the only time you should stop having sex with one another regularly is when you are devoting yourself to the word of God, prayer, and fasting. Right? And so the Bible has a very positive view of sex. And so why it is something that makes you unclean is not because it is sinful, but because it is commanded by God 
And God is teaching his people something about the way they are to live, how they are to be distinct. Some people pause it with all of these bodily charges, or bodily discharges. I don't know what a bodily charge is, but, but these, all these bodily discharges, that the idea is that anytime something goes out from us, it's this idea that life is leaving us. And that impurity and uncleanliness are all associated with death. And so um, we need to be pure and, and live towards life. And these are pictures uh, of, uh, for us to evaluate. Well, the, these kind of actions, this kind of impurity leads me into the realm of death, rather, into the realm of life. Continuing on in verses 19 through 24, we have a normal discharge from a woman. This is just menstruation, right? And, and we have it outlined what that looks like. It's, the, it's pretty much the same procedures. It's, uh, you know, you got to wait until the seven days are over. Language is a little ambiguous on this one. We don't know if she has to count off seven days or on the seventh day after it started that she's able to be made clean. Um, but the point is, is after she's unclean during that time that she is menstruating and she's contagious. So, wherever she sits, wherever she stands, that's going to make someone else unclean if you follow in her footsteps. Minor impurity, again, the the process that you have to go through to be purified is wait until evening, uh, wash yourself, wash your clothes, and then then you're going to be clean. I do think it is significant that she isn't told to offer sacrifices after this impurity, and there's no prohibition to anybody Um, that would be living in her household. So it's not wrong if you're living with somebody who's menstruating to interact with them or to touch them or to even be around them, right? That's an okay thing to do. It's not prohibited. At any rate, she follows the procedures to be made clean. And lastly, we have abnormal uh, female discharge, and this would be like the woman who is approaching Jesus at the front end in Mark 5. She's been bleeding for 12 years, and the blood has made her impure. And so, before we get to what's the point of all of these, all these laws on discharge and, and childbirth and, and that which came before, which is to demonstrate for us our spiritual condition, that, that we are made spiritually impure by factors outside of us and things that are within us, and that we all need to come to God. We all need God's provision to be purified from our sin. That's, that's the big point. We, we, God is holy, we are not, and, and we need someone to purify us so that we can enjoy his holy presence. That, that's the big point. But before we, we get to that and, and kind of close down, I want to ask the question, or I want to make an observation, I guess. What's plain here, and in Leviticus 12, and throughout all of Scripture, and has been obvious throughout most of human history, is that boys and girls are different. Boys and girls are different, right? You have instructions uh, for men and things that relate to their body, and instruction for women and things that relate to their bodies. Boys and girls are different, and reality continues to testify to this fact, even though uh, it's not super popular anymore. And I don't know why people reject this distinction. I think sometimes people view difference as if it were a threat to dignity or value or equality, and it's just, it's not that. Right? The Bible tells us that God made Adam and Eve both in his image and that both are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. That girls are not inferior to boys and boys are not inferior to girls. That both image God beautifully. And they image him differently. And it really is a shame that our culture wants to flatten these beautiful distinctions that God has built into our bodies, reflecting on the differences and God's good purposes in creating men and women different. Uh, Rebecca Merkel writes in her book, Eve in Exile, this, Throw your mind back to Genesis. What critical ingredient was Adam missing when he was first created? He needed a helper. By himself, Adam was incapable of doing his job incapable 
of either filling the earth or subduing it. So God created a helper suitable for the job. Woman was not an afterthought or just someone for Adam to talk to or someone who would make him sandwiches while he did all the filling and subduing of the earth. She was essential to the entire program. When God gave Eve to Adam, he was handing Adam an amplifier. Adam alone is just Adam. Adam with Eve becomes the entire human race. Adam is the single acorn sitting on the driveway, which, no matter how hard he tries, remains an acorn. Eve is the fertile soil which takes all the potential that resides in that acorn and turns it into a tree, which produces millions more acorns and millions more trees. Eve is fruitfulness. You can see she's drawing out the difference between Adam and Eve and God's grand design for the world and in his design for humanity. You see, these two pieces are different and they complement one another in a beautiful way. It's like a harmony does in music. It's like peanut butter complements jelly. You know, they go together. They work well together. And God had a purpose in designing them the way he designed them. God created men and women beautifully different with different parts to play in his symphony. Men and women are equal in dignity, honor, and worth, but distinct in terms of how they relate to one another and how they reflect God's glory. God has made us different on purpose. Merkel continues here. She says, God loves harmony. He loves the same tune playing out in different strains of the music, intertwining, harmonizing, and each making the other more powerful by virtue of the fact that each is doing something different than the other. Friends, God has made you wonderfully, and he's made you either a boy or a girl. And when he made you, he, he didn't make, you know, he didn't make Joe Smith and then say, then put Joe Smith in this body as if the body had nothing to do with who Joe Smith is. No, no. God creates us as a psychosomatic unity. It's a fancy way of saying he makes us all one. So that our bodies actually inform us about what part of what God's plans are for us. So that if I'm a boy, I know that God wants me to live life as a man. And if I'm a, a girl, I know that God has purpose in creating me as a girl and he wants me to live life as a girl. It doesn't matter whether or not I, I feel a particular way. I know some Christians, and some of you, might struggle with this. I've heard people tell me I feel uh, like a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa. And I think this is born out of Gnosticism and, and a belief that, that the mind is separate from the body and superior to the body, and the body's bad, and, and we need to rage against the body. But God has created your body, and he's created it good. And the answer is to not forge a rebellion there, but to love the body that God has given you. It might be hard sometimes. It is hard to live according to God's design in a great myriad of ways for everyone. But all of us are called to die to ourselves and to not trust in ourselves, but to trust in the God who made us, to trust that he knows better than we do. And so, friends, I want to exhort all of you to love your body. Love the way that God has made you. He made you that way on purpose. Differences between men and women are not to be flattened. They're not a threat to dignity. We're called to live in accord with them. You say, okay, I'll buy that. But if they're not a threat to dignity, why then do they cause such impurity? That's a good question. You see that in verse, I'm in the wrong chapter, I'm chapter 12 in verse 5. 
But if she gives birth to a female child, she will be unclean for two weeks. And if you do all the math here, you find out male child, seven days, female child, 14 days, male child, 33 days, female child, 66 days. The difference is total of 40 days to a total of 80 days. She is unclean double for a girl. Why? Is it because, as we've already ruled out, this theory that because girls are inferior to boys, we say, well, that, that's not the case. And that's further corroborated by the fact that the sacrifice is the same for a daughter or for a girl. And so we go, but how do we answer this question? I don't know why this drove me crazy. This question drove me crazy all week, the last two weeks. And so here are a couple answers, and I'm going to just be up front with you. I didn't find one that really satisfies me. So I don't know at the end of the day. But here, here are some top contenders for the reason why the longer impurity. Medical reasons. The discharge after having a female child was considered to be longer than the discharge that persisted after having a male child. And there's actually contemporary medical evidence that supports this. Still, the discharge doesn't last long enough longer to justify a doubling of the time, in my opinion. Uh, another suggestion uh, by Rabbi Ishmael is that uh, girls take longer to form in the womb, and therefore the period of purification for the mother is longer. Another one, uh, that the longer purification period anticipates that the daughter will go on to bring uncleanliness to the camp by virtue of her menstruation and her own childbearing. And so the purification period is longer. And lastly, and this might be my favorite one, but it's also the most opaque, uh, is that the boy's circumcision and his bearing of the covenant seal of God somehow shortens what would be the normal purification period. With me on that? Because he has to be circumcised on the eighth day. But at the end of the day, I don't know. And for those of you who are curious, uh, the purification for having twins would follow the same guidelines here. I, I actually reached out to one of the commentators and asked this question, and that's what he said. So there you go. Just in case you were going to try to follow this. Uh, The point here is, is that this text is not teaching us that girls are inferior to boys in any way. Yeah, we do see the Bible teaches that girls and boys are different, but God has designed them different on purpose, beautifully, wonderfully. And he's designed both in his image. Both men and women are made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. And both men and women need be purified, need to be free from sin. Jump back to Leviticus 15 here. And it kind of sums up the whole section in verse 31 where God says after giving these instructions, he says this to Moses and Aaron. You must keep the Israelites from their uncleanness, their impurity, so that they do not die by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. And so you see, I've told you to become ritually impure is not sin. But it is meant to teach about the holiness of God. It is meant to teach about morality and to teach about sin. But if, we, if Israel doesn't address their impurity ritually, it becomes sin. You understand? So if they go, these laws that God has given us to follow, to teach us about his holiness and our need for spiritual cleansing, I'm just going to ignore all those. Well, at that point it becomes sin and deadly sin. And what, what God's saying here, quite obviously, I think, he's not telling them, keep all the Israelites from becoming impure ever, right? That's an impossible task. But what he's saying to them is, don't allow the Israelites to persist in an impure state. Teach them these laws so that they know what they must do to enter into a state of ritual purity, so that they might enjoy relationship with me, so that they might come into my presence and worship. And thus we have the sacrifices for childbirth and the sacrifices after major impurities, the offering of a purification offering to purify from sin. Offering of a burnt offering for general atonement and for praise of God. Purity 
It's a big deal. And impurity needed to be dealt with. I mean, when we look over these laws, and I'm probably going to say this a hundred times before we're done in Leviticus, I just can't believe the details. Like, Leviticus is nothing if not thorough. Like, and that God cares about these things. Don't, Don't miss that point. God cares enough about Israel and enough about you. He cares about these details. See what I'm saying? Like he, he cares about discharge. That's how much God is interested in you. He loves you. He is indifferent to nothing. He wants honored in everything. I wonder, do you honor God in everything? Jesus says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Or is Jesus Lord in your life? I tell you, Jesus is Lord. And he is ready to save anyone who comes to him in faith. He can make clean any stain of sin. This brings us back to Mark where we began. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood stopped, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you? How can you say who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. This woman comes with fear and trembling because she knows the ritual purity laws. She knows she should have been isolated from the rest of the community. She knows that she has made other people unknowingly unclean. She knows that she's put Jesus at risk by reaching out and touching him. She might make him unclean. And she knows that he's healed her. And she knows that he knows all of this. She knows that he knows her sin. And so she trembles. She's worried. How's he going to respond? Surely he's going to rebuke me. I've come to him a sinner. Surely he's going to send me away in disgrace. Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. I, I, I love this. this. This woman gives us a model for what all of us should do. All of us are impure. All of us are unclean. All of us have the stain of sin on our souls. All of us have rebelled against God and deserve to die. All of us deserve an eternity under God's wrath. But God has been gracious. He's made a way for us to have relationship with him. He's made a way for us to be made clean, to get the stain out. When we, like this young woman, did you notice what she did? She heard about Jesus. She came to Jesus and she touched his clothing. Oh, this, this is the pattern of a disciple. We hear about Jesus. We hear the gospel. We come to him with nothing in our hands. And we reach out and we say, make me clean. I believe that you can make me clean. And if we do that, if you will do that, repenting of your sins, Jesus will say to you, son, daughter, 
brother, sister, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Friends, this is good news. This is good news. Jesus is able to cleanse us from all our sins and all our unrighteousness. He's able to do it because he died for those things. He took this woman's uncleanliness and every impurity of every saint and he went to the cross and died for it. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. On the cross, he took hell so that we could have heaven. And he rose again from the dead, victorious, so that when we have faith in him, we can walk in the newness of life knowing that we one day will be raised from the dead like him. Brothers and sisters, there is purification from sin. We can enjoy relationship with God and be made pure. We need only to come to Jesus and to be cleansed. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away the stains of sin. There is power in the blood. Wonder-working power that brings dead people to life that turns sinners to saints, that transfers wicked people from darkness to light. Pray that you would put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for the sections of Leviticus that seem odd to us. We thank you that even here, we can hear your heartbeat, your desire to be in relationship with us, to teach us about our lost state, and to remind us that you will welcome us home with open arms if we, like that prodigal son, simply pull ourselves out of the pig pen and come home to you. You will be there to greet us with a kiss, a robe, and a ring. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your kindness to us and your grace and your mercy. We give you praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.